More bets, better odds at PlaySugarHouse.com. Sign up today at PlaySugarHouse.com, and don't forget to use our promo code HOUSE to take advantage of their first deposit match up to $250. Must be 21 years or older and in New Jersey to place a bet. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to House of Cards. Today, the game is different. I want to gamble. Gambling is a very serious business. Is that clear? Welcome to House of Cards. Dave Weishado with you here, deep from the swamps of Jersey. We've got a great show coming up for you. Over the past couple of years, esports have exploded. Celebrities and athletes are getting involved with it. Professional teams are sponsoring leagues. Colleges are giving scholarships for it. And even states are allowing betting on esports. How did esports start and where is it going? Well, a fascinating new book is answering those questions. The book is called The Book of Esports. And coming up, we're going to be talking with the author, William Collis. He's going to tell us all about esports and the incredible culture that has developed around it. So stick around. We'll be right back with House of Cards. Attention Medicare recipients and anyone turning 65. Medicare has approved new benefits not included with original Medicare and older Medicare Advantage plans. You may not be getting all of the benefits you're entitled to, including in-home aids, telephone appointments with your doctors, home-delivered meals and prescriptions. These benefits may be available and it's a free call to enroll. The new plans may also offer free eyeglasses, free hearing aids, free wellness visits, and gym memberships. Call the Medicare Benefits Line now. It's easy. Call 800-217-1797. 800-217-1797. Find out if you're eligible for new benefits like meal and prescription delivery, in-home aids, and telemedicine. Some plans may have a $0 monthly premium or zero copays for big out-of-pocket savings. Not all Medicare Advantage plans are alike. The new plans have more benefits for many people. Call 800-217-1797. 800-217-1797. 217-1797. Unlock your best self with the Life Hack Pack from More Labs. The Life Hack Pack contains two bottles of morning recovery, two bottles of Dreamwell, and two bottles of liquid focus. The Life Hack Pack is specially designed to help you live your life not just better, but smarter. Morning recovery is designed to be taken while drinking or up to an hour after your last drink. Dreamwell is designed to be taken 30 minutes before you're ready to fall asleep. And Liquid Focus is designed to be taken 30 minutes before you have to lock in and get stuff done. Supercharge your productivity at home or work with the Life Hack Pack from More Labs. Use promo code RADIO15 at morelabs.com to get 15% off your first purchase of the Life Hack Pack or any of their other great products. That's promo code RADIO15 to take advantage of this great promo of 15% off your first purchase at morelabs.com. The Life Hack Pack for More Labs. Drink smart with morning recovery, sleep easy with dream well, and get more done with liquid focus. You can finally do it all with help from More Labs. You're listening to House of Cards. Check out our website at houseofcardsradio.com.
Welcome back to House of Cards. Dave Weishaddle with you. Anyone in the gaming industry knows that esports have exploded over the last couple of years. Players have become stars. Celebrities have become involved with it. Professional sport leagues and owners have jumped on board with esports. States are even allowing betting on esports. But how did this whole industry start and where is it going? A great new book has just come out that talks about the evolution of esports and where it's going in the future. It's called The Book of Esports, and to tell us all about it, we have the author of The Book of Esports, William Collis, on the line. William, thanks for joining us. Are you kidding? It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much. And then thank you for writing this book. It's such an amazing book with an amazing amount of information. And, you know, it's esports is so new to a lot of people, and it sounds like a broad term. But for people out there new to esports, what are we talking about when we talk about esports? What kind of games are involved when we talk about esports? Yeah, great, great question. So essentially, you know, esports. Like, I mean, just like regular sports, right, the definition is flexible. You know, there's different lines you can draw depending on, you know, what you perceive to matter or be important ingredients. But broadly, esports are just their multiplayer competitive video games. And the difference of why esports are sort of really blossoming now as opposed to, you know, decades of, you know, when games first came into being is the skill cap, the professionalism, and the media interest around the games has driven so much and grown so much that, these titles are now behaving more like traditional sports because they have real access to sponsorships, eyeballs, et cetera. Um, you know, I think it's worth pointing out, I always like to kind of stress this to people who listen, you know, like when people hear games, I think they often go to Super Mario, right? Imagine, you know, the little Mario running through the level and jumping on Koopas or whatever. And it really is important to note that games are so far beyond, I think, that entry point today, particularly in the esports world. They're multiplayer, you know, oftentimes played between teams of three to five people, right? They involve really sophisticated teamwork strategies. They involve incredible precision commands. I mean, top players have APMs or actions permitted of 300 or more in some games, which is literally issuing a command every fifth of a second. So that has come a long way from Mario, and the skill cap is really very high. You know, like you said, esports have really blossomed over the last couple of years. How did you become involved with esports, and what was your inspiration for writing the book of esports? Yeah, well, great, great question. So, look, I mean, I've just been a gamer my whole life, and I think that's true. You know, I'm in my you know 30s right now. I think that, to some extent, is true of many people in their 30s. Is you know, I was part of the Nintendo generation. I just grew up being fascinated by interactive electronic media. You know, and I think games and the quality of games really blossomed during my childhood. So I've just been, you know, say a lifelong fan of you know, video games. But that obviously doesn't translate into writing a book and being an expert. And so what happened to me is, you know, I was actually sort of in a traditional business career for management consulting and brand management and things like that. And I saw just the growth in eyeballs on these games, and I was just flabbergasted. You know, you were at the time having the LCS, which is the big championship series for League of Legends. It was approaching, it was exceeding the NBA or the M Major League Baseball for viewership numbers. And, you know, I just kind of thought to myself, I have to get involved in the space um, because I'm a you know, passionate gamer, and I see that these games are really becoming sports. And so I ended up raising a significant amount of venture capital for my first business in the space, Gamer Sensei. It was a coaching platform because, believe it or not, back then you couldn't get a coach for video games, um, <laughs> which might sound strange to some listeners. But, you know, honestly, like you need a coach for tennis or a teacher for piano. So you probably need someone to help you master League of Legends or Overwatch or things like that. 
So that really pulled me into the space professionally. And, you know, it's been kind of uphill roller coaster ride from there. Um, but in terms of the book, I was actually asked to teach esports at Becker College. Um, Becker College has a very prestigious sort of game design program in the American Northeast, and I was really flattered. And so, you know, I was basically going to be one of the first esports faculty members in America. And I showed up to class, you know, I said, yes, it's going to be awesome. And I thought, I'll show up to class. There'll be all these great resources to use. You know, I'll just assign some textbooks. And I showed up, there was nothing. Like, nobody had done any research or really written anything about this space, you know, because it was so new. And there I was thinking there would be, like, an eSports 101 textbook or something I could just assign. And so I realized very quickly there was just a massive opportunity for somebody to put together kind of a definitive overview of the space that would help orient newcomers, you know, and people who are curious about games, but also have a lot of stories, insights, and importantly, frameworks and predictions that appeal to experienced gamers, right? Mm-hmm. And so that led to the creation of the book, and here we are on this radio show. So. Okay, hold that thought. We're going to take a quick break. See you on the other side. Free stuff is awesome, but free stuff that will spice up your bedroom is even better. Just go to adamandeve.com and select almost any one item for 50% off, and then we'll load on the free stuff. Just enter this very exclusive code, BABE16, at checkout, and you'll get 10 tantalizing free gifts, including a sexy item for him, a special toy for her, and a third item you'll both enjoy, and Six extra special bonus items that are sure to rev your engine, pique your curiosity, Mm. and even blow you away. Plus, free shipping. Always sent in discreet packaging. Go to adamandeve.com now. Get 50% off plus the 10 free gifts when you enter the exclusive offer code BABE16. That's BABE16 because without it, no No free stuff. stuff. That's BABE16 at adamandeve.com. In a market already crowded by a number of online options, PointsBet simply stands out. And if you still haven't signed up with PointsBet, now is the perfect time. So don't wait and sign up today. Awesome daily promos, odds boosters you won't find anywhere else, early payout promos, it's all at PointsBet.com. You can bet from anywhere in New Jersey using your mobile device. And don't forget to try your hand at points betting, where your potential winnings or losses from a bet aren't fixed, but variable right up until the end of the game. The more you're right, the more you win. And now PointsBet has a brand new offer for new customers. Just sign up using our promo code HOUSE, H-O-U-S-E, and you'll receive four risk-free bets up to $1,000. This is the largest welcome offer in the sports betting marketplace, and we do encourage new players to take advantage. And make sure you use our promo code HOUSE to get this special sign-up offer. That's promo code HOUSE, H-O-U-S-E. Bets you won't believe, moments you'll never forget. Must be 21 years or older and in New Jersey to place a bet. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. You're listening to House of Cards. Where was the house? Where was the house of cards?
Welcome back to House of Cards. Dave Weishaddle with you here. For those of you just joining us, I am talking with William Collis, author of the Book of Esports. Well, you mentioned you grew up in the Nintendo generation. Well, I grew up in the late 70s and the early 80s, and I was pretty much addicted to my Atari 2600. And I always joke on this show that I think Pong was probably the first e-game, but uh, you actually address that in your book, and you say that esports started before Pong, actually. Uh, when did esports actually start? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I, I have a, a, a controversial view for this, but I sort of trace the origins of esports back to pinball machines, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, over 100 years ago. And the reason for that is if you think about pinball machines and kind of like the pinball arcade culture that grew up around them, you had kind of all the ingredients for esports in an early form, right? You had these pinball boards that you manipulated with your hands and your body, you know, similar to controllers or keyboards today. You had a machine that was giving you input and output and scoring. And, yeah, these pinball arcades, like high scores and the competition around it became really competitive and really drove sort of cults of personality, you know, around local players. Think about the song Pinball Wizard by The Who, right? I think that kind of exemplifies the phenomenon. And so what I point out in the book is, look, people always sort of had enormous respect for people who could be good at games, right? But, you know, and, you know, really, you know, for ages, right? But now that respect is just shifting as electronic games and video games have become such a major part of our culture and our daily life for most people. And the book goes in, there's a whole framework that explains well now. Um, it's called uh, the SCARS framework, which essentially argues that there are four precursor factors you need for something like esports to bloom skill, community, accessibility, and reward. And really what's driven this most recent burst is the uh, the um, the reward element. For the first time, because the eyeballs on the space, you can earn a lot of money. And so it makes sense for people to devote their lives and livelihoods to it. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up, because if you look down on my notebook, I ask about the SCAR factors, and I think it's such a great way that you explain that. Uh, you also have other four factors that need needed to move competitive gaming forward for businesses, and that's the BAM factors, B-A-M-S. What were those factors that need to be needed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I should say before I answer the question, I don't want listeners to think like the book is this very boring, dry no, academic no, it's, book. It's, not, it's, you not. Know? <laughs> like I, I, it's the opposite. I really, my number one goal was writing something that was fun to read and, you know, candidly relatively short. Like I think games are an absolute blast and I wanted something that you could, you know, read in three or four sittings get a lot of knowledge and laugh along the way, right? But at the same time, you know, I have a, you know, relatively serious business background, right? Like I went to Harvard Business School and things. And I I wanted to have some rigor around the structure and discussion of the space sure. because there really wasn't any. And so these frameworks that I introduced are, they really, for the reader, they help orient the argument and the narrative of the emergence of esports. But also, you know, hopefully they, they lay some signposts for, you know, how the industry itself can move, grow going forward. But specifically for bands, that's the monetization model for the publishers employed. Mm-hmm. So it stands for, oh my God, I gotta remember these, it stands for blades, advertising and assets, microtransactions and subscriptions. And those are essentially, one thing the book argues is that the evolution of games has largely been driven by the evolution of publishers discovering new and clever ways to monetize their titles. And so, the, the essence of it is things started with 
what is called the Blades business model, which is razor and blades, which actually comes from the shaving industry. It's this idea that you sell the, you know, the basically the system at a low price. So in you know, the shaving industry, it's you sell the, the razor at a low price, but then you sell the blades, the blade replacements at a higher markup because you've locked the consumer into the system. And so that's exactly what the console industry did. And the console industry sells you the hardware, the console, relatively cheaply, right? It's still expensive, but it's marked down significantly or subsidized from what it would otherwise cost if it were just a direct purchase. But once you bought a console like Nintendo, you had to have to buy the Nintendo games. And so you can reap the profit or the revenue back on the incremental game purchases. And so modern gaming really started with that model. And it invented all these other great ways to monetize going forward, like subscriptions or microtransactions. And now we're in a world where you don't even necessarily have to make money on the game itself because they're media properties, these advertising and assets that you can sell around the game, like franchises and things, actually allow the games to monetize independent of direct games revenue itself. Is it absolutely safe to say that without the rise of the internet, there would be no esports? Was that the most... Was that the single most important thing and creation that launched esports, the internet? I mean, yes and no, right? Like, I mean, the internet is just so fundamental to how it's reshaped our lives. Like, you know, just millions of things would look so completely different without it. You know, like, Mm -hmm. think about how many of us do our shopping, right? Amazon, that's an entirely new business model that's born out of the fact I can click a button and buy online. But it is true that for games, more than most industries, the internet helped massively because these are the big advantage esports has over traditional sports is it's competitive activities that are purely digitized. And so competition can transmit entirely over the internet. So now I can find an an opponent for my games in Poland or France or Brazil or China, right? And I can build a much broader and wider community, which is what's driving so much eyeballs and attention on these sports is it's a truly, these games are truly global sports properties. You know, anytime we talk about esports on this show or any show we uh, we do is uh, tw- the Twitch comes up. I mean, and other forms of social media. How, how important was Twitch to the esports community and how did that build the community? Yeah, I mean, Twitch is really one of two modern trigger points for the success of the industry. So I mentioned the scars factors and reward before. Twitch was really the moment. And for people who don't know, listeners who don't know, Twitch is a live streaming platform where basically I stream myself playing video games from my desktop at home and I'm finding an audience of fans and the fans that they like me can subscribe to me or issue donations to me. And Twitch really caused the current explosion in modern esports because it invented rewards for pro gamers. Before, the way you made money in esports is you would win tournaments. And those revenues are very unreliable. And candidly, they were also relatively small until recently. You know, you could take home 10 or 20 or maybe $40,000 for a big global championship. But, you know, that's not exactly NBA-level returns, right? But Twitch created this cult of personality around gamers, right? Almost like Instagram influencers or other things. Um, 
you know, gamers would now have direct reliable revenues because the subscriptions were recurring. So they could know, hey, every month I have a thousand people who pay me $5. That's $5,000 a month. Maybe I should commit to this thing and see where it goes, right? Mm -hmm. And then as a result of the eyeballs they gathered that brought in sponsors and advertisers, which is another revenue source. And the sponsors and advertisers started to pay for the tournaments that spoiled the tournament revenues. So Twitch was truly one of two catalyst points for the modern ecosystem because it created this, the reward factor for being a pro. And it's still, for many pros and content creators in esports, the primary way they earn their income. Stick around. We'll be right back with more House of Cards. You know, ever since the U.S. Supreme Court handed down its decision lifting the national ban on sports betting, the gambling landscape of the country is changing on a daily basis. So how do you keep up with all the latest news and developments? How do you know what each state is doing? You go to the one site that has all the information you need to stay ahead of the game, and that site is usbets.com. That's usbets.com. Written by the leading experts in the gambling industry, all you'll need is one visit to usbets.com and you'll see why it's the number one gambling magazine in the USA. With usbets.com, you'll get up-to-date information on not just the sports betting scene, but also the latest news and notes on the entire gaming industry all across the country. It's not just one state, it's all of them in one spot. Stay in the loop and stay on top of your game. Get the latest news on sports betting and gambling from the country's number one gambling magazine. Get on over to usbets.com. That's usbets.com. Hey, this is Dave Weishadol from House of Cards with your House of Cards gaming report for the week of October 12, 2020. The Nevada Gaming Control Board has announced that the state's casino revenue was down for the month of August. Nevada casinos recorded $743 million in revenue statewide, a 22% decrease when compared to the $954 million from August of last year. The Las Vegas Strip casinos recorded that revenue is down 39% in both July and August. The New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement has released data showing that casino employment is down 21% from this time last year. The report shows that the nine casinos in Atlantic City employed over 22,300 people in the month of August, over 6,200 fewer jobs than August of 2019. Indoor dining resumed in the casinos on September 4th, so this report has not reflected those returning to work in the hospitality sector. And finally, it looks like more online poker is coming to Pennsylvania. On September 30th, the Pennsylvania Gaming Control Board approved a license for 888 Poker to operate as an online provider in the Commonwealth. Only PokerStars has been operating as an online poker site in the state. As of press time, no live poker rooms in Pennsylvania have reopened because of the coronavirus. Have any news or tips regarding casinos, gaming, or legislation? Send us an email at newsroom at houseofcardsradio.com and follow us on Twitter at HOC Radio. House of Cards is brought to you by Drizzly, your online liquor store. Available in over 95 cities across North America, Drizzly offers a huge selection and competitive pricing with a side of personalized content. Now there's no need to leave the house. Get alcohol delivered in less than an hour by Drizzly. Head on over to drizzly.com and order today. And now get $5 off your first order of $20 or more when using promo code DRINK19 at checkout. Shop beer, wine, and liquor with drizzly.com. 
You're listening to the House of Cards. Well, don't take it too hard. I've done a lot of stupid things in my life, too. Stupid! What do you mean, stupid? Welcome back to House of Cards. Dave Weishuttle with you here. For those of you just joining us, I am talking with William Collis, author of The Book of Esports. The thing I loved about your book, The Book of Esports, is how you brought us through each game and you saw the evolution of esports. And one of the games I want to talk about is, and it's the first one I heard anything about associated with esports, was the game World of Warcraft. How important was that game for the early esports community? Oh, I mean, I, I, World of Warcraft is humongous um, because, you know, my argument, and it's a little bit, you can pick a lot of games that would work for this. In the book, I, I give credit to listeners might know EverQuest or Ashbrook's Call or these other earlier MMOs. But World of Warcraft was really the first time you had large online communities forming around games that were stable and, and exerted influence into the real world. You know, the classic example of World of Warcraft is the number of marriages and divorces that came out of that game are incredible. <laughs> There's some statistic in the book, I forget the exact number, but it's like 10% of all divorces in the United Kingdom were partially attributed to World of Warcraft or wow. video games. It was ridiculous. <laughs> the spouses were just playing so much World of Warcraft. It was such a different causal factor. And for people who weren't around during the latter, I mean, it was huge. It dominated people's lives. And I think it got us comfortable as a society with real digital goods and digital prestige having value, right? I think that's what World of Warcraft did because, like, being a guild master of a large, respected guild, like, in your game, that was something that came with adoration and accolades. And I even knew people at the time would put that on a job resume. You know, they were proud of it. It showed they could organize large groups of people. And so World of Warcraft was a precursor of those community factors that I talked about in Scars. It was really the birth of online community. And, you know, I don't want to short World of Warcraft. It's an amazing success in its own right. It's still, I believe, the most popular MMO in the world. It speaks to World of Warcraft is a very good example of the other framework in the book, Omens, which predicts the success of games, um, which we can talk about if you want. But um, in terms of esports, it basically it showed the value of online communities to the world. I'm a novice to esports, and what I found fascinating was the important game that I've really never heard of, and that was StarCraft. Why was that such an important game in the esports community and the growth of esports? Oh man, you never you never heard of StarCraft. I, that was no. really yeah. Well, you know, StarCraft, for people who don't know, StarCraft is a real-time strategy game, okay. which basically involves controlling an army of about 200 units from a top-down 3D isometric perspective. And while you're controlling that army, you also have to build the base for the army, you have to harvest resources for the army, for that army, right? And so, as you can imagine, this gets really, really difficult to control because you're controlling 200 units, a base, resource harvesting, right? And so StarCraft, in many ways, was one of the highest skill cap multiplayer games of its time. It just took incredible amounts of proficiency to be good at. And even if you were good, you could keep getting really, really good. And so, you know, many gamers are probably listening to this podcast. That's probably the biggest thing they remember about playing StarCraft is just 
how hard it was to play and how talented you could get at it. But StarCraft matters to esports more than just it's a really difficult to play game that raised the skill ceiling for competitive titles. It also matters because around StarCraft, you've got a real proto esports scene in South Korea. And there are all sorts of reasons why um, it started in South Korea, but essentially the scar factors were present there first. And so if you look in kind of, I forget, like earlier, you know, the, about you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when this game was building in popularity in Korea, right? Mm-hmm. People around the world were looking at South Korea and going, that country's so strange. Why would there be a pro gaming league on TV? Like what's happening? And the reality was South Korea wasn't strange at all. It was just early. Because of its sort of some of its unique geopolitical factors, it got the scars factors around gaming ahead of the rest of the world. And so it was kind of the canary in the coal mine for the phenomenon of global esports that was going to come. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was interviewing the owner of a major fantasy sports platform. And one of his sections that you can play fantasy sports on was League of Legends, which was very surprising to me. Talk about League of Legends and how important was that in the evolution of esports? Well, you know, League of Legends is arguably the most popular esport in the world today. Um, So it's maybe the most important game of all right now for listeners to know. Um, And League of Legends is interesting because it sort of grows out of StarCraft, actually. Um, In fact, the problem that StarCraft has, if you imagine how I just described StarCraft to you, like it's really difficult to control 200 plus units. As a new player, it's daunting, and I sort of quit. Right? Like, I get frustrated. <laughs> I'm up against somebody who's put thousands of hours into the game. I just, it's too difficult for me to follow what's going on. And so, out of this RTS genre of games that StarCraft is a part of, you get what's called the MOBA genre, which stands for Massive Online Battle Arenas. And these essentially said, look, StarCraft, games of StarCraft are really fun, but what if you just had to control one unit as opposed to 200? So it'd be a lot easier. You could focus much more on just what this one unit is doing. We could have that unit gain levels and have more abilities, and we could try that. And these games, these movies, actually started as mods within StarCraft. Um, and then they moved to Warcraft 3, and they became something called Dota that I'm sure many listeners are saying, you know, very, very familiar with. And I'm kind of glossing over the history here in the interest of time. But the point is, you had the MOBA genre born out of the RTS genre because it preserved a lot of the skill cap that vastly enhanced the accessibility, particularly for new players. And within the MOBA genre, Riot Games was really the first publisher to really effectively adopt a free-to-play business model, a microtransaction business model. We go back to that SAMS framework that I discussed earlier, right? And this is what I mean about publishers leading innovation in the industry. They took a new genre of game. They applied, at the time, a relatively uncommon or less common monetization strategy to it. And as a result, they had an exploding player base, um, and they became the global esports phenomenon they are today. And yeah, I mean, if you don't know League of Legends, you should look. I mean, the LCS in some years gets more viewers than the Super Bowl. So it could arguably be the second largest sport in the world right now behind only uh, football or soccer, right? Or, yeah. Sorry, soccer. I use football in the European term. Absolutely. And, you know, one of esports that has been in the news lately and I hear a lot about is Overwatch and the Overwatch leagues. I mean, is that the wave of the future for esports when you look at Overwatch League? Is that what esports will become? So you're asking all all my favorite questions here, by the way. Um, But recall I sort of said earlier, look, 
there are two moments that really define modern esports and catalyze the birth of modern esports. One was Twitch, right? Sure. The other was the Overwatch League. And so for people who don't know or aren't familiar, the Overwatch League was the publisher of the game Overwatch. And Overwatch is what you would call a squad-based shooter, maybe, or a lot of different terms, but essentially you're a team of six heroes with fantastic powers. It's played from a first-person perspective, and you're shooting people with guns and things, but you also have these heroic abilities like flying or teleporting. Or Yeah, it's a very cool game. Um, and the game was very, very popular, you know, post-launch. Blizzard knew they had a pre-launch. Blizzard knew they had a hit on their hands. And so they made a decision. They said, we really, really want to lean into the competitive scene here, and we want to actually sell franchises. So just like the NFL or, you know, the MLB, where you can buy a city-based franchise for Boston or New York and gain exclusive rights around that geography, Activision Blizzard decided they would do that for Overwatch. And overnight, that was really the moment when modern esports was born. And that happened because now, as a team, right, you think about sports, teams are really important. Previously, I kind of struggled to make money and have a reliable permanence around my income streams, right? Because I could hire my players and build a great squad, but my squad was only as valuable as the players on it. Their contracts would lapse or be bought out, and there was nothing protecting my space in the league. So if somebody else came in with more money and said, I want to pay your players double, they could just force me out. But all of a sudden, this franchising created permanent rights. And if you think about sports, permanency is the key. Mm-hmm. Because you need to know, like, if, look, look at, let's say I want to devote myself to a baseball career. I start with a little league, I might play college ball, then I go to the minor leagues, all of that to finally get into major league baseball, right? If I'm lucky. Now, I have to have faith that whole time that major league baseball is going to be there, right? It's not just going to swap to major league cricket or major league hula hoop or something crazy, right? You know, and we just trust that sports are permanent. But esports weren't like that. Games were shooting over here. Think about how many Mario titles a casual listener can name, right? Yeah. Um, but the Overwatch League created this permanence for the teams, and it put a flag down for permanence in the space. And it said, this game is going to stick around. And real respected sports franchise owners, because a lot of major sports franchise owners bought into this, were willing to pay $20 million or more for those rights. So this had real value. And that signaling kicked off the modern gold rush in esports. Did Overwatch League also symbolize the time when esports was trying to transition into a spectator sport? I mean, was that the intention of Overwatch League, and is that how they sold it to sponsors that were now becoming a spectator sport? A hundred percent. If you think of where you were in that BAMS framework, you're sort of at a microtransaction stage at that point. Most publishers were interested in how do we give the game away for free or at a low cost and make as much money as we can on selling you incremental upgrades in the game. That was the hot new business model. And the Overwatch League said, no, we can get franchise revenue for the publisher. I can get teams to pay me $20 million a pop. That adds up quickly. I can sell advertising. I can sell sponsorships. Teams can sell advertising and sponsorships. We can do local events. And, you know, some of this was already happening before. I, I don't want to say that the over, like, all of this suddenly came into existence because the Overwatch League. This was a gradual trend. But the size and scale of the Overwatch League and the permanent rights it granted, it transitioned esports from a cost center from the publishers, basically a marketing expense, putting on these tournaments in the hopes that people would buy more copies of the game and buy more things in the game. It turned from a marketing center into a revenue center because now, 
the act of throwing competitive activities could just be profitable in and of itself, right? Mm-hmm. Look at the, I think the most recent deal Activision Blizzard did was a hundred million deal with a hundred million dollar deal with YouTube for exclusive rights to the Overwatch League for three years. And I think some other leagues, Call of Duty and Hearthstone along with it, right? So that's a lot of money, you know, even for a big company like Activision Blizzard. And so that was the moment, you know, again, Overwatch League is just so important for what it's done for the space. Um, and that was the moment when publishers were like, hey, I don't just have to spend money on this. I can make money. Advertising and assets is a way we can monetize games. And that's where we are today. We're in this process of discovering all the different ways games can monetize without ever asking a player to spend a dollar on anything related to the game. How much pressure did that put on uh, game publishers? I mean, they have to create a game that's fun to play, but also now fun to watch. I mean, I keep thinking of the example of poker. I know a lot of people who like playing poker, but I also know a lot of people who can't stand watching it on TV. I mean, how much did this change the business of game development? Well, you know, the short answer is not enough, right? I think publishers are still grappling with the fact that games don't just have to be fun for players anymore, they have to be fun for viewers. And I think the success or failure of many of these other leagues that have come into being um, post-Overwatch League, and even including the Overwatch League, is really largely driven by the fact that <laughs> these games, while they might be an absolute blast as a single-player experience, they're a nightmare to watch from a third party, right? They, you know, They're not set up to be wonderful viewing experiences, so to be wonderful playing experiences. And what that's teaching the industry right now is you can't just take a competitive multiplayer game and say it's going to be a hot esport. Because the reality is, unless the viewership experience is there, sponsors don't want to be there, advertisers don't want to be there, because viewers don't want to be there, right? And so I think the industry is still grappling with all the implications of how game design has to change. And I think... Some games got partially lucky, like League of Legends, going back to that. The decision that it made early to focus on one hero to increase the accessibility for new players also vastly increases the accessibility and clarity for viewers. But also, to Riot Games' credit, they have made many, many business decisions since then to optimize the viewing experience of League, not just the playing experience. So they clearly understand as a publisher, and they're part of really the vanguard in this regard, they they really understand that it's not just about playing the game, it's about watching. You know, like you said, the leagues like the Overwatch League are modeling themselves after other professional organizations like the NFL, the NBA, the MLB. Will esports players be modeling themselves after players in these leagues? Will we start seeing esport player unions where the where there'll be uh, collective bargaining agreements? Oh, what do you see as the future for esport players? Well, this is a really interesting question because. This is where, you know, one thing I always sort of caution people about is, okay, you know, this parallel between esports and traditional sports, right? Mm -hmm. You have to be careful because it does apply much of the time, but the times it doesn't apply, it really does not apply, right? And I think the case of player lifestyle and player experience is one where the traditional sports paradigms probably don't apply. Um, And... Let me give you an example, but before I do, let me just say something like player unions, that that will exist. And in fact, it does. There have been organizations okay. like PIA that I think stand for the professional esports or the pro esports association or something that have come into being that have tried to aggregate player rights. And I think we're going to see more of that moving forward for sure. But the big difference between being a pro gamer today and being a pro athlete is 
you know, let's use an example of somebody I know, like, you know, Tom Brady, right? The quarterback, right? Because I'm from New England. Although I guess maybe I shouldn't be such a Tom Brady fan now that he, <laughs> he's a cat. But anyway, um, right? Like, when did I actually see Tom Brady? I saw him in games and I saw him in commercials. And that's about it, right? That was it. So my exposure to Tom Brady was basically NFL games, essentially. NFL advertising. Now, think about esports pros. If you're a popular gamer like, you know, Shroud, you might be streaming yourself playing four hours a day, five hours a day, eight hours a day. That is a completely different fan engagement experience with the athlete, right? It is completely different because you're inside their lives. You're basically, these people could be a permanent part of your evening, right? For many people, they tune into somebody like, you know, Shroud or Dr. Disrespect, and that's what they're going to do for their entertainment in the evening. So in that regard, esports pros behave almost more like um, Instagram influencers or social media influencers or even TV shows than they do professional athletes. And that's actually a divide in the industry, too, because if you think about being an esports pro and having a choice, right, you can stream and get your streaming revenues right, which are very lucrative and very reliable, or let's say you have a big tournament coming up and you want to practice, but you want to practice in secret. You don't want to show the other teams your strategies or the heroes you're working on. And, you know, because like that is a huge advantage, right? So the more competitive you are as a player, the more streaming becomes difficult to integrate into your lifestyle. And the more you have to sacrifice some of these streaming opportunity revenues for the chance at competitive revenues, and where the industry nets out on how that trade-off makes sense is going to be really interesting to see because I don't think it's settled today. Some pros say, I just love competition. I'm a full-time pro. Other pros drop out and say, I earn way more money streaming than I do maybe sometimes winning tournaments. Um, but in that regard, again, esports pros are totally different in terms of how they behave in market than I think professional sports stars. Stick around. We'll be right back with House of Cards. Sometimes life is wonderful, and sometimes it's not. Cherish the good, but always be prepared for life's challenges. At Private Healthcare, we provide the peace of mind you deserve. With Private Healthcare, you'll get the coverage you want and healthcare you need. If your employer doesn't supply healthcare coverage and you don't qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, you need to give us a call right now. Private health care is private health insurance for ages 65 and under with medical, dental, vision, and even prescription coverage. When life comes at you unexpectedly, you need to be ready, and health insurance is your financial safety net. If you're looking for health coverage at the best price and your annual household income is 35000 or more, give us a call at 800-231-9279. That's 800-231-9279. 800-231-9279. You're listening to the House of Cards. Night. Night. Not thrilling, but night.
Welcome back to House Cards. Dave Weishaddle with you here. For those of you just joining us, I am talking with William Collis, author of the Book of Esports. How are pro esport players recruited? I mean, I'm very curious about that. I mean, I've read stories that there are going to be esport drafts. There, uh, I read a story also there might be an esports combine, much like the NFL combine in Indianapolis. But how are these players recruited onto these professional teams? Well, you know, lots of different ways. Um, sometimes with networks, you just know players. Sometimes analytics, um, but you know, more and more of the industry is professionalizing. Like you said, combine, right? Like, you know, I'll just give you a direct, there is a combine. For example, the NBA launched the NBA 2K League, which is their, you know, um, you know, their sort of digital version of basketball that they're building a competitive esport around. And the NBA, for the past three years, has had a combine, literally. Yeah. Like, they've had a combine for players to show their stuff and qualify and go through, right? And many, many other leagues have now minor league systems, like the Overwatch League has the Challenger League system, right? So this structure, what's kind of unusual about esports is for sports, we built the recruiting and so we built, we built it from the bottom up, right? I think like, you know, first you were playing with friends, then maybe the friends organized into regional leagues, then the regional leagues became, you know, um, national and then the national leagues kind of conflicted like in baseball and eventually merged together, right? So we kind of built the top professional scene from the bottom up. But in esports, because we sort of knew what sports looked like, we started at the very top. We're like, we're going world championships, you know, <laughs> United States championship, like major national, right? But the infrastructure under it, which a lot of that is training and recruiting, really didn't exist. And so that's partly what's being built now. And that's why you're seeing more formal solutions coming to the market in terms of professionalized player recruitment. But we still have a long way to go there as an industry. How does leagues and developers know that a game will be successful and maintain an audience for a long time? I mean, for example, Fortnite, I mean, that is such a great game for a lot of people. I mean, how did that maintain such a loyal following? Well, that's my last framework. Well, not the last, but that's another framework from the book, the Owens framework, because this is a really interesting question. And one of the big things that kind of propelled me to write this book is, why did some games stick around and other games not, right? And that is like a really central question for all the reasons I sort of said earlier about uh, about permanence in sport, right? Like, if you love the game, you need to have confidence it's going to exist if you're going to try to become a professional in it. And so the only framework is basically arguing these are the five factors that games need to display to continue to be successful and to compound on their success. Um, and they stand for opportunities for competition, monetization, ecosystem, network effects, and switching costs. And I promise, guys, this is a lot more exciting in the book. So I'll have a lot of fun reading about this. It's cool. There's great examples. But for the purposes of this, the publishers that do these elements well or better and improve them over time stick around. And Fortnite is a great example of a publisher that at launch had essentially none of these elements, saw what was happening in market, fast corrected the course, and today is you know, arguably still the most popular esporting world. Um, so if you think about Fortnite, when it launched, it wasn't even a battle royale game. For people who don't know, battle royales are essentially 100-person free-for-alls. 
you drop, you know, usually by air in some form onto an island or a tropical paradise or a space station or something, and you, you know, go crazy and like you kind of have to get everybody else killed. And if you're the last person standing, you win, right? So that's a battle royale game. It's a play from a first or a third person perspective, like a lot of traditional shooters you might remember. Um, and when Fortnite launched, it wasn't even battle royale. It was this kind of like zombie defense game. And at the time, there was an incredibly popular game that had invented the battle royale genre, PUBG, which stood for Player Unknown Battlegrounds and Market. And it was just exploding, right? Like exploding. I mean, it was beating every major mar- milestone for a monthly active players, for installs. It was crazy. Um, and the Fortnite guys, you know, and the publisher Epic Games looked and said, well, wait a minute. Let's take some elements from that. Let's relaunch Fortnite as a battle royale. That was their first decision. But then they started to do all these other fascinating decisions to compound the success of the game. For example, uh, Fortnite has a unique building mechanic where you actually build and assemble structures on the fly out of materials you harvest. And you think of a 100-person free-for-all game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, like uh, PUBG, in this example, right? Like, you just get killed randomly a lot. You're going around and somebody shoots you from across the map that you weren't looking It's very chaotic. But the fact that you can build these structures in the game in Fortnite eliminates a lot of that chaos. It allows you to build players to control the environment around them, right? And to manipulate it to their advantage, to protect against ambushes, to get height when they wouldn't otherwise have height, to build defenses against grenades, and all of this stuff. And so that's one example where they took the PUBG formula, they changed it, and they made it a much stronger and more and stickier game for users. Um, and that particular example I'm giving of the building mechanics raised the switching cost of the game. And a switching cost is basically when you trade games, you get to keep everything you have from the game when you go to the new game. And shooters have relatively high switching costs because all of them sort of play the same. You have a gun, you have to track targets, you know, and hit them in the you know vulnerable positions or vulnerable parts of their body or skeleton, right? Mm-hmm. But Building was so unique to Fortnite. If you got really good at building and you went to another game, that still did not transfer. So you were wasting hours you had in Fortnite because there was nothing else like it in the market. Nothing else had this unique sort of building system. And so that's just one example, but there's literally dozens of how Fortnite kind of rethought the Battle Royale genre and turned what was really a dead-on-arrival launch title into the largest Battle Royale game today and completely dethroned PUBG. And in the process, I think, showed a really clear blueprint of how publishers can design their games for long-term success. You know, another thing I'm seeing about esports is colleges and universities are becoming more involved with esports. I mean, even some are offering scholarship to players. Can you tell us a little bit about what colleges and universities are doing, and do you think more schools will become involved with esports in the future? Oh, oh my gosh. I mean, if there's a renaissance moment right now in esports, it's college university adoption. It is through the roof right now for esports. And there's a whole chapter in the book about this. I mean, I mentioned before, like, I, you know, you've got interested in writing the book so that to teach the college, and I couldn't believe it. I was like, there's a college that to teach about competitive video games. Like, sure, you know. Um, but why this is exploding in college is really, you know, two primary reasons. One is, it's just what college students want to do, right? Like, colleges exist to serve their student body, and so many kids of college age today, you know, 18 to 21, are, you know, gamers. I think that it's basically like 50%. And a surprisingly 
fair gender split for it as well, fairer than you might expect, right? So if you have half of your student body logging in to play League of Legends or Rainbow Six Siege or Rocket League every night, as an administration, you're going to take notice because clubs are going to form, students are going to request. And if you're in the business of keeping your students happy, you're going to realize, hey, there might be something here with esports just from a student demand perspective. But the other reason it's important is because of the same reasons we value traditional athletics, right? They build engagement, they build school pride, and eventually alumni donations. And the reality is esports has all of those same benefits. They build the same affiliation. People become, you know, people, schools with strong esports programs. It actually becomes a defining mark of the school. You can look at uh, Robert Mar. Morris University, RMU, um, about, you know, as an example of that, where it really took over the identity of the institution in some regards, in a positive way, by the way. I don't mean it's a negative. Um, and, you know, by the way, the students who are playing esports are maybe not the same people, or at least some of them aren't the same people who are, you know, participating in traditional sports and getting the benefits that way. And they're maybe not the same people showing up for band practice. So it's sort of an incremental student body you know, elements as well that can be brought into the fold and give all of these benefits back to the institution. So I think because those and other reasons, this is like the next, basically this next five-year period in the esports is going to partially be defined by how fast colleges adopt them. And it is crazy. You know, I think you're going to see 100% of schools with esports programs before the end of the decade. It's like that big and happening that fast. You know, one of the things in the news about esports is that some states are allowing people to bet on certain tournaments. And I know casinos are taking a hard look on how they can become involved with esports. Do you think allowing betting on esports will help esports? Or you think esports shouldn't be involved with the sports betting world? You know, I think I, leaving sort of personal opinion aside, I just think I'd say, look, like, you know, things like fantasy sports and wagering have just been so important to the evolution of traditional sports, right? Like, we just had the we just had the DraftKings IPO, right? Didn't we? And it was like a crazy success, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like it's just such an element of the ecosystem for traditional sports. I think it's something that is just going to have to be an element of the ecosystem in esports because. Fundamentally, esports esports are going to behave the same way from a viewer experience. You're going to watch at home. You're going to become passionate about certain players. You're going to get into the stats and the numbers behind them. And that all leads to things like DraftKings. So we will have it for esports. It will be huge. Um, you know, and I think it's it's that that is one of the other, you know, psychology university. I think the wagering market is the other thing that's going to be a massive, massive growth opportunity for the industry going forward. William, we're running out of time, but uh, can you tell people how they can get a copy of your great book, The Book of Esports? Well, thank you so much for asking. Yes. So the book is called The Book of Esports. Um, that's hopefully very easy to remember. Uh, <laughs> and you can get it literally wherever books are sold, you know, Amazon, um, you know, Barnes & Noble, you know, any of the, you know, other online listing sites. Amazon is the one I usually recommend to go to. And it's available in all the formats. It has a hardcover edition, which is my favorite because it looks gorgeous on a shelf. It has an audio book, which is actually narrated by me. So if you didn't get bored hearing my voice <laughs> during this interview, you can hear me read it. Uh, you know, in the audiobook version, it has an ebook, you know, all the popular formats. So definitely check it out. The book has, you know, just been stunned by sort of how well it performed and the positive response to it. Um, and if you're hearing about it for the first time, like, please check it out and give it a read, because I promise there's a lot more interesting facts in it than I shared in this 
brief conversation. And I also promise it is a really fun read. Like you will enjoy it. I wrote something that would work for casuals, but as a hardcore gamer myself, you know, there is a lot in there if you've been gaming like me since the original Nintendo. So check it out and enjoy. William Collis, author of The Book of Esports. Thanks so much for coming on and telling us all about the world of esports. It's such an exciting and growing field of sports that I'm sure people are going to learn more about through your excellent book. And it was such a fun read. I, I read it so quickly and I enjoyed every bit of it. Thanks so much for letting us know about it. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to be here. Well, that'll do it for us this week. I'll see you next time on House of Cards. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.